0: Leviticus chapter twenty-six. I read verses one to thirteen. Leviticus twenty-six. You shall not make idols for yourselves, or erect an image or a pillar. You shall not set up a figured stone on your land, or to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely." I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase a ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store, long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke, and made you walk erect. Lord, I pray that whatever we need today, that you would give us. Father, we know that our greatest need is Christ, and so we pray that you would feed us from your word this morning. Feed our faith, feed our knowledge of you, feed our righteousness, Lord, that we might be um, holy as Christ is holy. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are now coming to the end um, of our year-long, really, study of the book of Leviticus, uh, the book of the law of God. We've, we've got a few more weeks, but we are in the second to last chapter. Um, I've got to hand it to you. You have worked through this, one of the most difficult books in the Bible to really understand. Um, of course, the law of God, it first begins in Exodus Really, with the Ten Commandments, and there's more law given in the places in the, in the book of Numbers, and then it is reiterated throughout Deuteronomy. But with the exception of really just a few short passages of narrative here in the book of Leviticus, this book itself really just contains law, God's rules for holiness, Leviticus, if you remember, it endeavors to answer the question posed by, really by Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? As such, Leviticus is primarily focused on worship and on holiness. It's in chapter 11 that the the people of God are called by Yahweh Himself to be holy as I am holy. Of course, that's what the psalmist was, was answering there in Psalm 24 when he immediately follows his question of, of who shall it, uh, ascend the hill of the Lord. He follows that with this answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Leviticus not only answers the question of of how God's people should then live in complete obedience to His law, but it also begins to reveal God's plan of redemption for a people who, frankly, do not live in perfect and absolute holiness, who do not have clean hands and a pure heart. This plan of redemption... Was hidden for many ages or as Colossians says to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory see the book of Leviticus is the next step In the revealing of the mystery of redemption, the the mystery of salvation. And that mystery is now fully revealed in Jesus Christ. So Leviticus, the law of God, is pointing at man's need for a savior. Leviticus is pointing at Jesus Christ. John, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer knew this. Matthew chapter 3 describes him like this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And when it was time for the Lord to be revealed... The baptizer, John the Baptist, proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that statement, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that statement makes no sense without the law of Leviticus. It makes no sense without without an understanding of the requirements of the law of God for the people of God and God's provision of a substitute on the day of atonement who would die for the transgressions, the breaking of the law of the people. Leviticus is a code of law and as such it points to Christ. Romans chapter 3 puts it like this. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by Him. So so Leviticus is a code of law giving us knowledge of sin and showing us our need for a Messiah, a Savior. And the law is the terms of the old covenant. Um, A covenant is essentially a, a legal agreement between two parties, and typically in this Uh, covenant um, idea, there's a power structure of some sort. There's a higher power and a lower. And the common feature of ancient covenants, we know this both from Scripture and through historical documents, a common feature is that they would contain a, a series of blessings and curses, the general idea is that the, the higher power, the great king who, who delivered the lower power from, from the lower party from bondage, made a covenant to which they agreed to follow. He demanded fealty. He, he demanded absolute allegiance. And so the great king, in this case Yahweh, God, the Lord God, promised to continue to protect the people he had redeemed. He promised to to act in kindness toward them, to to provide a place for them to dwell in safety and to meet all of their needs, provided that they were were faithful to his covenant stipulations. This is where Exodus 19 comes in. Um, I referred to this several times throughout our study as we've worked through this. The king proclaimed there as he initiated a covenant He said, now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. If the people of Israel um, completely and perfectly keep the laws that God has given them, and that they have agreed to keep, then He will bless them in very specific ways. We're going to look at those ways in just a moment. But if they do not keep the law of God perfectly, which we know they will not, they will face His curses. Of course, as in any covenant agreement, the fulfillment of, of either the blessings or the curses it was dependent on the ability of the king who, to follow through on his promises. Well, this obviously isn't a problem for Yahweh, right? Israel's king. In fact, he was, he was fully able to muster all of creation, um, whether that would be nations or nature itself. He can muster all of creation to enact his blessings or his curses. We're going to see this throughout the Old Testament. When he, when he would send either, either drought or plentiful rains. I, I, indeed, we will see this as he raises up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings not their own, as he tells Habakkuk of the coming curse that Israel faced in the Babylonian captivity. Yahweh is Lord of all, and He has authority over all of His creation. He has the power to enact His promised blessings or curses, however He sees fit. But He doesn't have a hair trigger. (laughs) Remember, he, He is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. And so the goal of the promises and the warnings, even of this chapter, Leviticus chapter 26, the goal of these things is to encourage the people of Israel to obedience and to discourage their disobedience. Remember, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, they had pledged. This chapter of blessings and curses, it begins with a summary of their obligations. This is a summary of their obligations. Look again at verses 1 to 3. So Leviticus 26, just verses 1 to 3. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone on your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then stop there. Jesus summarized the law with two statements. You probably remember them. Matthew tells us this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And the obligations reiterated here in these, it's really verses 1 and 2. But the obligations that are reiterated here in these first few verses, they're from the the great and first commandment, as Jesus calls it. That is the love the Lord your God part. Notice what it says. Absolutely no idolatry. Keep the Lord's Sabbath and revere His sanctuary. And do you see that that oft-repeated statement there? I am the Lord. In fact, He says it twice in these few verses. This is a a demand of allegiance to the God who who first revealed that that this this was his covenant name, I am the Lord. He revealed this to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am, Yahweh has sent me to you. promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. This was the God who had redeemed them. He is a a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to rivals of any kind. And so, His faithful people were to show their their covenant loyalty to Him by steadfastly avoiding the idolatry of the nations around them. Now, the the making, the building, and the the subsequent worship of idols, it was not only a violation of their allegiance to Yahweh, but it was also, also a reversal of creation. We talked a little bit about this. In Sunday school, the reversal of creation, man here is forming gods in their own image in in order to manipulate them and control their own fate, to bring blessings on themselves and curses on their enemies. That's what idolatry is for, right? To manipulate my own fate, to meet my own needs, to bless me and curse my enemies, But the faithful ones of Israel, they were instead to steadfastly avoid idols. They were also to keep the Lord's Sabbath, the Lord's day, as a witness to their covenant relationship with their king. Remember, we've talked about the Sabbath a lot over the last few chapters, but the Sabbath was a sign of the covenant, Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 and 13 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. The Sabbath was to remind the people of God throughout their generations that it is God who sets them apart as a holy people for his own possession." He has graciously given us what we sometimes call the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, as a reminder of these things. And related to this command is their obligation to reverence the sanctuary. That is the place where Yahweh meets with His people. So just as when Moses was called to to take off his shoes at the burning bush because he was standing on, on holy ground, so too they were to revere his sanctuary. Now, this is not to say that all of the other commands throughout the law are unnecessary or are somehow lesser than these. Rather, these three together are reiterated because the people, if the people don't attend to these three, they will not attend to the others. If they don't obey these three, they're not going to obey any of the other laws. See, a hatred of idolatry, a careful, rather, like, hate idolatry, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You do that by celebrating the, path, the, the Sabbath. So a hatred of idolatry, a careful observance of the Lord's day, the Sabbath, a faithful attendance to worship with a proper reverence will be the best means of keeping the allure and the corruptions of the Canaanite religions at bay. In other words, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength will necessarily prevent you from loving and serving other gods as well. Do you you see the application here for modern Christians? Consider the evil age in which we live. Secularism and paganism are abounding all around us. At the moment, um, and again, we talked about this in Sunday school, but at the moment, idolatry looks a little bit different than it did in Canaan. We don't often see people publicly bowing down to worship false gods and idols at least not within our own city. Yet, yet, listen to what Paul says to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19, he says, For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That does describe... The world around us—that does sound like what we see regularly. The world is is pursuing its own depraved appetites. Romans chapter one, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart and to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So how do we keep away from these things? We steadfastly avoid idolatry, holding fast to the trustworthy Word as we've been taught. We worship and serve Him alone by by keeping the Lord's day, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but rather by drawing near in fellowship, in communion with one another, with true hearts, in full assurance of faith. I'm referring here to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. And we reverence the house of God. What does that mean? Well, it's not simply the building, right? We know that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says this, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. That's pretty explicit. You are that temple as Christians because Christ has redeemed us and covenanted with us. We have certain obligations toward him. We too are to keep ourselves from from idols. We too are to keep the Lord's day. We too are to, to be the holy temple of the Lord. To reference God's temple that he is building here. The church. But for Israel... Notice again verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then... So there are obligations for the people of Israel. But there are also blessings for their obedience. Blessings for obedience. You you can see that, I've emphasized this a couple of times, that if-then statement contrast of verses 3 and 4. When God told the people to keep the statutes, he was reminding them of their duty under the old covenant. And if they lived faithfully and obediently, both, both collectively as a people and individually, as individuals within this, then they would expect to see certain blessings as a result. Now, I want to put these blessings in, in three. There's three categories and then a bonus category at the end. It'll make sense in a moment. So three or four different categories. And the first is this. It's actually material prosperity. Look at verses 4 and 5. So verse 3 begins with if, verse 4, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest and the grape harvest shall last to the time for the sowing and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in land securely. Now, here's what we have to remember. This is, um, the big word is eschatological. This is eschatological in nature. That means that this looks forward to the eternal state. This looks forward to eternity, to the real promised land. So remember last week, we talked about how how the year of Jubilee, all debts were removed, and they moved back to the promised land. We said that that um, holiday, that super Sabbath of Jubilee, it it was a look back at the perfection of the Garden of Eden, a reminder of the way that things were supposed to be, that God created them to be before sin came into the world. And it also looked forward to eternity when God made all things right, when he made all things new. The same is true here. Except it is so clear to us as we read through this that the emphasis is on looking forward. Even all of these promises, even these are yet to be revealed in the future. And so this first blessing of uh, rain for abundant crops, well that can easily be dismissed by skeptics, right? These are just weather patterns. That's all this is. In fact, we know that, that, that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, so if they have a good year and they praise God, Jesus himself is the one that said that, that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. But this blessing is more than that. It's a promise that in the promised land, if they obey... In the promised land, the Lord will continually bless them with rain if they obey. There will be no threat of, dr- of drought. The rains will be regular and they will be just the right amount. No drought, no flood either. Their harvest will be at, at perfect productivity if they obey. So does this mean for us that if we stay away from idols if we keep the Lord's day and reverence His sanctuary, that God will bless the rains down in Ohio? That we will eat our bread to the full and dwell in this land securely? Well, no, but also yes, provided we're talking about trusting in Christ who has perfectly kept the law for us provided we're talking about uh, the land that we're talking about is is the future promised land that we are still awaiting. In fact, Jesus puts it like this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The Lord has promised to bless His people, those who have called upon His name. And He promises it here with Material prosperity, just the right amount of rain and crops, just not maybe in this life, but definitely in the one to come. Secondly, he also promises to bless them with peace and security. Look at verse 6. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid and I will remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase 10,000 and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. This second promise is um, a blessing of peace and security and and, and that means it was both the, the absence of hostility and it was also for their peace of mind, their, their own sense of well-being. If they obeyed, no evil beast or uh, invading army would genuinely threaten them. Now, sometimes the, um, the prophets of Israel, they would refer to Israel's enemies as some sort of man-eating wild animals, lions or leopards or something like that. But in this case, this is almost certainly literal And so this was a a complete rest from the cursed world. This was a restoration of peace and security and order in creation. Again, this is eschatological. This is is looking forward to that day when these things will all be true. We, We woke up on Saturday and saw that that is not happening in that land right now right? It hasn't been happening in that land since these days. The, the closest Israel has ever come to that happening in that land was probably during Solomon's reign. But since then, they've, they've been at war. Why? They don't obey. In fact, have rejected Christ. Listen to this promise as we think about the real and true promised land. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. This is clearly about the coming Messiah. It says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then later in verses 6 to 9 of that same chapter, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with a young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're longing for that day. We are longing for that day. These are the things that the people of God, those who have trusted in Him, still long for. Look again at verses 7 and 8. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, a hundred shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. This is important for Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan. See, later, Joshua, who had led the conquest, at the end of his life, Joshua says, as he's blessing the people, as they've been given their allotments, we've referred to this, he, he, he's near the end of his life, and he says this as Joshua 23, verses 6 to 11. He says therefore be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses turning aside from it neither to the right hand or to the left that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them you shall not cling or you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day for the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. As for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One of, man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Here it is. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. It was the Lord who went before them. It was the Lord who went before them and routed their enemies. It was the Lord who made the sun stand still so that they could continue to fight. It was the Lord who made the the walls of Jericho fall down so they could go in and take it. It was the Lord who fought for them and had the victory. The Lord promised his people. He promised his people uh, the blessing of material prosperity. He promised his people the blessing of peace and security and also fruitfulness fruitfulness verses nine and ten I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you you shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old and make way for the new if the Israelites obeyed the Lord he would bless them with descendants and provision for generations to come that's what this means this too is part of the it's actually part of the covenant promise that goes all the way back to creation and the command to be fruitful and multiply. And yet even among among all men after the fall, the Lord blessed Israel with children. Consider, for example, just one verse. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That is the land of Egypt he's talking about. Consider Proverbs 17, verse 6. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their father's. Consider these blessings. Psalm one thirteen, verse nine. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Psalm one twenty seven. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who uh, build it labor in vain. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. These are just the blessing of children. Consider the blessing of godly children. The Apostle John writes in 3 John, verse 4, and which one of us would not echo this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I'm old enough now to be able to say those things. We echo these things. What did Jesus say? Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. This right here, this is one of the reasons that we rejoice at having so many children here at RBC. Because God is pouring out his blessing on us as a people, on our families that are here. But remember this, we also understand full well that it is God who opens and closes the womb. And so we, we rejoice with every new mom and dad. It's become a thing now. Somebody will email me or text me and say, hey, can you pray for, when you pray for the pregnant moms, can you pray for me? We rejoice, don't we? We also pray for those who as of yet have not experienced the same blessing or who struggle with it. So let's summarize this. God will be faithful to his covenant promises, but participation in the fulfillment of those promises requires faith and obedience. The same is true for those under the new covenant, right? The message of the gospel goes out for all people, promising eternal life, promising these these things in Christ, but only those who believe are given the right to be called children of God. This brings us to that fourth, and and really we could say this is the ultimate blessing. The final blessing here. verses 11, 12, and 13. I will make my dwelling among you And my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. We could call this as God is the King of kings, right? Christ is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We could call this the blessing of blessings. This is the basis of the fulfillment of all of the others, and this emphasizes the spiritualness of all of this. God has promised to set His tabernacle among them and to commune with them, to walk with them, just as He did Adam in the garden. This is the ultimate fulfillment of His covenant promises. And God, who is faithful to fulfill all of His promises fulfilled them all, and he called his people to walk in obedience to his law. Yahweh, God, who redeemed these people from slavery in Egypt. He gave them liberty. He gave them freedom. He gave them a dignity. He is worthy to be obeyed. He is the God who keeps his promises even when his people don't. Here's the truth. The truth is that God promises to reward his people with both spiritual and physical blessings if they are faithful to the requirements of the covenant. And so this morning, the question that remains is this How can you get in on these blessings? Because sometimes I don't feel like these things are true for me. We've had a pretty good year weather wise, I think. So some of us, a few of us are out in the fields reaping the harvests this week. But some of us are struggling. Some of us are struggling with peace and security in our own families. Some of us are struggling financial security and blessing. Some of us are struggling maybe with not having children are not being married. How can we be a part of the blessing of God? Peter answers that like this in Acts chapter 2. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. The answer is is this. All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That that doesn't mean you're going to be rich. In fact, Jesus had lots of warnings about that. It doesn't mean that life is going to be easy. You can ask anybody else in this room, and there have been seasons of difficulty. But it does mean that in the life to come, God continues to pour out His blessings. And so we hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ because one day all of these, all the junk that we see in the news and happen in our own life the drama, the difficulty, the struggle, it's going to be gone. And he's going to make all things new. And all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Pray with me. Lord, we long for that day. We long for the day when we don't have to wonder about our bills, when we don't have to wonder about our family. When we don't have to worry about peace and security, material prosperity, when we don't have to worry about fruitfulness or a lack thereof. We long for the day when Christ will return and set up His kingdom finally and fully. We know that he has come, and John tells us that he has tabernacled among us. He has dwelt among us. We have seen him with our eyes. John testifies. And Christ has promised, I will return and make all things new. That day when he will walk among us again and be our God, and we shall be his people. Lord, we long for that day. We pray that we would not take our eyes off of our Savior who fulfills His promises. Even though some call it slow, He is not slow. Father, we pray that we would keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and that knowing that all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.